Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Ouchie. Ouchie is a free app for iOS and Android that provides solutions for chronic pain management. Today's guest is someone who was at the way top of my list when I decided to start this podcast. In 2012, after undergoing a major surgery, I was in Barnes & Noble on the hunt for books about chronic illness. I wanted to read things I could relate to and figure out how to share my experience with the people I loved most. The first book I picked up was How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick. For someone who loves reading but has a really hard time focusing, I was hooked immediately. The tips that Letty Cotton Pogrebin provided were so helpful. As we've discussed many times on the podcast, there's no manual for managing a chronic illness, let alone having a friend or family member with a chronic illness, but this came really, really close. I purchased this book for so many people and recommended it to even more. So welcome the wonderful author of this book, Letty. Thank you. Good to be here. So happy to have you here in your own home. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do, which is a lot of things. I'll be brief, however. Um, I'm basically a writer, a lecturer, and an activist, mostly on the topics of relating to women and Middle East peace. But I veer all over the place, and as soon as I publish a book on a topic, I become also a lecturer on that topic. So I've spoken all over the country on issues relating to illness, and I've really learned as much from people since I published this book than I learned from people who I interviewed for the book. And uh, the kind of feedback you get, I think people keep saying, well, write another volume. I don't want to live in the land of the sick. That's one of the things I have to say on this podcast. It's hard enough for us to navigate um, our own problems, but we don't necessarily want to be seen as, in my case, cancer girl. So been there, done that, got it under control, I hope. That's the most I can say. Um, I've had a lot of illnesses since. They seem to be fine also, but I am way more than my illnesses. Yeah, I think a lot of people here can relate to that concept. Mm -hmm. I do not want to be defined by my health, but I also want to create content around this topic about people who are enjoying and living their lives as you and I are, given the hand that we've been drawn. Mm -hmm. So when you were diagnosed with breast cancer a bunch of years ago, what was your treatment and recovery like? Can you give a little rundown on that? Yeah. Well, first, when, when you come out of a mammogram, you if you're me, I, I mean, I'm very old. I'm going to be 80. I, I can't. You do not look it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the fact is it's a matter of existential shock, and it's the number of years left that you worry about. Uh, the number of years lived have been fabulous. But you come out of a mammogram, if you've had as many as I've had, and you're used to hearing... The technicians say, you can put your clothes on, you're fine. And then when suddenly the technician comes out and says, the radiologist would like to speak to you, you know you're not fine. So that was like literally like a bolt of lightning. I had this pain in my heart and I was breathing, shallow breathing, and it, it's kind of okay, my number's up. You know, there's one in eight women and higher for the Jewish American populace. 
Um, and as soon as she explained that I had it and I, I needed uh, an oncologist, I found an oncologist. Um, I went through additional tests, obviously. Ultimately, it was discovered that I needed surgery, but not chemotherapy. So I had a lumpectomy, but I lived a lot, a lot of time fearing that I was going to have a mastectomy. I must say, I was thinking a lot about this podcast and what if I had that's invisible and it's actually everything. All my illnesses have been invisible. I have had to choose to make them visible. And it's making that choice that for me was one of the most difficult things in the early stages. Like, who am I going to tell? Because once I tell people, I know that I am, and I'm going to put, put it pretty bluntly, I am stuck having to tell them from then on everything, which is partly what you want and partly what you don't want. I really prefer to go through stuff that's hard by myself. That includes, I have a husband, three children, six grandchildren. Everyone would like to go with me to everything. They like to walk me to my radiology. I want to be myself. That's how I do it. But I also want people to understand what I'm going through to the point where if I'm in a lousy mood or I'm worried or I'm scared, I want to be able to tell them so they know it's not about you. It's about me. Don't think you did anything that made me angry or pissed. This is, this is my, my issue. So having to decide who to tell took me such a long time. And I think I got it down to 12. Mind you, I'm this old and I have so many different constellations of friendship, activism, professionalism. You know, I have my writers groups. I have my Jewish groups. I have my feminist groups and my leftover friends from Niz. And I have friends from childhood. Who am I going to tell? I chose 12, and I asked them to please not say anything to anyone. I wanted to be able to call on them to carry whatever my needs were, address them. About three days later, I get a, a phone call from somebody who was not one of the 12, who was kind and caring. I just heard, I'm really sorry. And then I realized people cannot keep their mouths shut, partly because I was asking them to do something that I think is, is too hard for most people who care about you. They have to put their fear and concern onto somebody else, too. It's kind of like a radiating you know, pebble in a stream that people who you tell then worry about you. And then they want to tell their husband or they want to tell their best friend. I have a friend who's got breast cancer. She doesn't know if she has to have a mastectomy. She's really worried. And before you know it, you have, don't have 12, you have 24, and then you have 48. And before you know it, I'm taking phone calls and emails, literally a dozen times a day from people. I'm so sorry, I just heard. And I don't know how I could have done it better. I don't, I'm not sure there's a way to do it better. I think you just have to expect that, maybe narrow it down even more. Um, but you have to be in a kind of balanced beam of Gratitude for people who care and really burden, the burden of having to report in. Um, and I think, again, as you said in your intro, each person has to calibrate that according to her own personality, the needs of her life, how much time you have to get on the phone and explain your, your situation. And what does it mean to not tell someone? The not telling, which is, again, a prerogative of somebody with an illness like that. I mean, if you have you know, a broken leg and arm, people are going to say, how are you? But otherwise, it's up to you to tell them how you are. 
I happen to hate the words, how are you? And I think one of your guests said that, uh, that I heard on a previous podcast. There are several lines I recommend for readers and listeners not to say. And oddly enough, how are you is one of them, which is so hard for us. That's what we do when we see somebody. How Did you, you learn that and recognize that during that breast cancer diagnosis? Or was it something that you had thought about previously? Never had thought about it previously. Never realized how many times in the course of a day I say fine. You know, it's the fine line. You, literally, even if you have a really bad cold, you have to say to yourself, well, do I really want to go into it? You know, my throat hurts, my nose is running. No. So you say fine. It actually forces a performative decision. I could say fine and move on and say, you know, this is not someone I really want to care with. Or I can say, well, I'm waiting for my oncotype and I'm not sure if I'm going to have to have a lumpectomy. And if I do, then I have to have 11 nodes taken. I want to do that with somebody. I want somebody to monitor what I'm going through when I'm going through it. But I really, at this point, I shut down. I really did at that point. The other thing that I, I did not like to hear was you look great. The you look great line, you know what it really was saying? It was saying, uh, I never really noticed how you look or you didn't used to look so great. And now that's all I can think of to say to you. And I'm trying to buck you up. And I assume you're a woman. You're going to care if you, how you look. I don't, I don't want that going on. This is so, um, it's, it's like a, a prima facie lawyers would say a prima, prima facie case of phoniness, of being just filler, filler. I don't like that. And the other thing that I really noticed I don't like, but I still do myself, is, oh my God, oh my God, to a teenage audience is like, oh my God, I love your shoes. Or, oh my God, I saw the greatest movie. But to my age or anybody middle age and beyond, oh my God, is, are you going to die? So... I didn't like those three lines. Yeah, I can definitely relate to all of those. I remember being in the hospital a few years ago, and they were trying to stick an IV in me having a problem. And the woman doing it just clearly first day on the job, you got to feel for them, but it's like, you're sticking me with needles. And my aunt all of a sudden was like, enough, you got to get out of here. We got to bring someone else in, like too much. And as she walked out, she goes, I love your toenail polish. <laughs> And it was like, oh my God, how, oh my God, <laughs> how can you possibly think that's going to make me feel good right now? Get out of the room. So I, I totally hear you on that front. And I think it's such an important thing to acknowledge because people don't know what the words are to say. And that's really the topic of why we're here today, because people are scared and they want to be supportive and they want to help their friends and their family members and their loved ones but they don't know what the right words are. Mm -hmm. And I always talk about how my friends didn't know, should they text, should they call, should they show up, should they send something, should they leave me alone? And every day was different. And I think there are days when I wanted as much support and I wanted days where I wanted to be left alone, but a text saying, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of you meant the world. Mm -hmm. So what made you put this book together, How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick, and basically create this manual, as I mentioned, for people to really figure out how to navigate something like this. And by the way, it has the cutest little sorbet gelato yeah. on the front to make it a little light. 
Yeah, well, it, it's a picture of two bowls of, uh, I guess, sorbet, although I don't like sorbet. I like ice cream, so I like so cinnamon ice cream. Ice cream. And it says, and it's got two spoons sticking out, one out of each. And it says to me, first of all, when in doubt, bring ice cream. That's just safe. Unless you're someplace, you're visiting someplace where there's no freezer. But if you're going to somebody's house, bring ice cream. You can't figure, you can, you can hardly ever go wrong with ice cream. Even a tonsillectomy loves ice cream. And to me, it also says two people sitting across a table, close, friends sharing a couple of ice creams and telling the truth to each other. How to be a friend to a friend who's sick has kind of one answer, honesty. And it is so weird how people resist that one answer. They, they, it's as if Emily Post said, never mention, when you're visiting a person who's in mourning, never mention the dead person, which is exactly the opposite of what people really want. People want you to say, I loved your, your cousin. We had such a great time one summer at camp. I'll never forget the way he jumped from the high board. Something specific that acknowledges that a, that a person you love left an impact on other people's lives. So what you think is polite ends up being fake, ends up being almost insulting. It's like, why are you here? I mean, how, I don't even know you. How close are you? And, and, and it deprives the person of a gift that you have to give, which is a memory. So that's dealing with people who are in mourning. And I, I have a couple of chapters. I, I mean, I have, um, when I say how to be a friend to a friend who's sick, I mean sick at heart as well as sick in body. And somebody who's mourning is a real test when you're visiting a mourner, a grieving person. It's a real test to what kind of friend you are. Are you going to be tuned in or are you going to say, you know, Hallmark greeting cards for mourners. Are you going to say time heals all wounds? Or are you going to say it must be the most horrible thing ever? You know, which is what is really true and what the person is really feeling. I I think the best thing to say is the truth, as in, I can't imagine what you're going through. And when you just described to me what you went through, I can't imagine what it is to have gone through what you went through with your particular situation because I didn't have anything like that and I can't imagine what it's like to go through life continually feeling something because I'm in a position where things get better there's a real difference and you know that if you do this and you take that and you stamp your feet and you haven't changed your diet things get better but when you know things aren't getting better when you're not supposed to bring a get well balloon to someone with ALS. That's the kind of mindlessness that I that I write about. If you really were focused on your friend, if you really cared about her or him and knew the situation, you would realize someone with ALS is facing, you know, a downward spiral. Think about ways to get their mind off it. Give them something they love to do. You're not going to make them feel better with a balloon. I do a lot in the book about gifts because I think, again, we spend huge amounts of money on flowers. And then you go to the hospital room and the windowsill is full of flowers, half of them dead. You know, otherwise they're all crammed into vases that are too small. The nurse has to leave the room and get somebody to get a vase. It's all like, why bother? Or you, you have Zabars, let's say, in New York City, Zabars is famous <laughs> for gift baskets. 
they are these grotesque things in baskets with with orange cellophane over them. And inside is like, you know, old crackers and waxy looking pears. And who wants this stuff? You're not going to bite into a hard pear when you're getting better. You don't want figs and dates. Maybe your digestive system isn't up to it. Why spend $125? They're expensive, at least in New York. Why spend $100 on a gift basket that's completely inappropriate to the particular illness when you can, if you have that money, give someone a massage? You know, give them a $100 credit at a gas station so that when they have to drive to their treatment all the time, they know they have got a gas card. Think, think, be honest, personalize. I love that tip. I think about when I was in the hospital, a friend of mine who really meant so well bought me a gift card to a bakery on the Lower East Side to get cupcakes. And a few days out of surgery, I got home. I'm living in the West Village at the time. And I went to place the order like, okay, sort of the gifts have run out. The flowers are dead. And I went to place an order for the cupcakes and they don't deliver to my neighborhood. Yeah. (laughs) It was one of those things where I'm like... This is such a useless thing. I have to go down to the Lower East Side while I'm recovering to get these cupcakes that this person so generously tried to give me. So it's the thought that matters. But so your your suggestion is a massage. What are your other favorite gifts that you've been given or you like to give? I think I say in the book, if somebody had just plain asked me, which is now what I do. I mean, honesty is really such a guy. If somebody said to me, you know I'm going to bring you a gift and you've told me when is a good time to visit, which is definitely a part of the, you know, honesty and sensitivity, you know, role of a, of a friend. If they said, what, what would you like? You know, what do you, what do you really want right now? Uh, if they said that to me, I would have said, um, lamb chops. You could bring me a couple of lamb chops, maybe a brownie. Because those are my favorite foods and you want to kind of indulge yourself. Especially like when I wasn't sick. I wasn't after surgery. I was waiting for the results, which was the hardest time. And people visited me knowing that I was in a high state of tension, terrified. Um, you know, I didn't know what kind of cancer, breast cancer it was, how bad it was, had it metastasized, did I have to leave one breast, two breasts. I knew nothing. If I could have had a meal, like what I consider my last meal, <laughs> maybe add some pesto, <laughs> I, I mean, it would have been a, a true gift. And we could have sat down by yourself a couple of, you know, lamb chops, we'll have it together in my kitchen. That would have been such a warm, wonderful thing. People brought me books, which are nice. I'm not reading books when I'm with, I'm really, I mean, I'm reading books maybe when I'm after surgery. And yes, books are okay then. But think of where I am, a spectrum of ups and downs of an illness. It's very different when you're waiting for to know what you have. And once you know and you're open to the land of the sick and you know what you have to do next, and everything else just rolls along like a steamroller. So the people who are able to personalize, I mean, I think I, at this point, I don't know what I've actually written or heard along <laughs> the way, but somebody who uh, had broken his leg and he was really kind of reconstructed and covered up in all, you know, white crust. And then the leg was hanging um, 
and, and he had it set up in his bedroom because he had some really blood thing also. It was very complicated. person brought him a bottle of wine. And he was a recovering alcoholic. Oh, my God. And they forgot. It's like they focus on the leg, but they didn't focus on the person. They know this person's a recovering alcoholic. They just forgot because they're thinking flowers, wine, book. That's the easy thing. Flowers, wine, book, plant. You can't just go there. If you really care, you do the personal and the special and the thoughtful. Love that. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Ouchie. Ouchie is a free app for iOS and Android that provides solutions for chronic pain management. It was developed by people living with chronic pain and the people who care for them. Even though over 120 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, you would never know it. Like with invisible illnesses, people with chronic pain don't always talk about their experiences because they don't want to be defined by their condition. Ouchie is the place where you don't have to be invisible or hurt alone. The app uses evidence-backed tools like cognitive behavioral therapy, pain tracking, community support, access to resources, and integration with clinicians to help people feel better faster. If you have chronic pain, celebrate the accomplishments in the everyday with Ouchie. Check out ouchie.com and download the Ouchie app to see for yourself. And make sure you share with them that you found the app through Made Visible. And now back to the show. So what made you incorporate other patient stories into this book? So finally, I'm, I'm diagnosed and I've had the lumpectomy. I'm grateful for that. What year was that? Um, 2009. 2009. So I'm coming up on 10 years, which is really nice. Congrats. Thanks. <laughs> and I'm in the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for my every single day, six weeks radiation. <clears throat> and I made myself a rule that I would walk from my house, which is on the upper west side of Manhattan, to Sloan, Sloan Kettering, which is all the way over the East River, in order to see how my energy level was while I was having radiation and to push myself a little. And uh, once I got there, I usually I had a book with me and I just read, but suddenly I thought about some stupid thing a friend had said to me the night before. And I said, you know, I need to read a book on how to help my friends be better friends. You know, something I can just give them and say, we're going through this together. Thank you very much for being at my side, but read this. And so I Google it and there's nothing. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. So uh, there, there are books telling, interestingly, young adults and children how to be friends with a sick kid at that level which is very simple and very sweet, but very targeted to the young people. And I said, I gotta, I, I can't find this book, I have to write it. And I look around the room. Well, first I say to myself, well, I'm, I'm a journalist. I know I have to report this. I can't just write my thing. And I can't, I don't have the freedom. I have to be here every day for six weeks. So I can't report this everywhere and run around. Then I look around the room, and there in my uh, bone Kettering waiting room are people of every race and age, and it turns out from all over the world, not just the country. And I turn to the woman next to me, and I say, I'm writing a book about how to be a friend to a friend who's sick, which was true for as of five seconds ago. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, would you mind telling me 
how your friends have been either helpful or not helpful through your illness. First of all, this woman is, is dressed beautifully. She's, I forget, wearing a white silk blouse and pearls and, you know, probably heels or something. And all of us who are there for treatment, we're in sweats and jeans. And so I should have realized she was from Connecticut and she was the wife of a patient. And I believe he had testicular cancer or maybe rectal cancer, an embarrassing cancer for a man. And she said, I'm not the patient, but I will tell you that without my friends, I couldn't be going through this. I drive my husband here every single day. He refuses to tell any of his friends. I'm the only one he confides in. I feel like I have bricks on my shoulders. And we have two small children. And if it weren't for my friends picking up my kids after school, taking them to the after school activities. I couldn't be doing this for my husband. I'm in Connecticut. It takes us an hour and 15 minutes to get her. Once we were stowed in, we had to get a hotel room. And I just called my friends and they took it on. So I realized I had to interview people about not their illnesses, but about their um, partner's illnesses, their children's illnesses, their parents' illnesses, their friends' illnesses. And how Rather than just what, what was happening to them now as cancer treatment people, how things had happened for them when, if and when they had heart conditions, if they had psoriasis, whatever they had before, did they remember anything that was helpful or not? And before you know it, over the course of six weeks, I had 80 interviews. And these were, you know, many men who had told nobody but their wives or partners, many men, no women who had not friends, um, people who were able to, you know, describe to me their experiences with death, uh, their experiences with uh, chronic illness. So I kind of knew where else I wanted to go once I was done with that in terms of reaching out to populations I wanted to. I think it's interesting because I just had this conversation yesterday with some people about the topic of how caregivers are not really paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And I was in my writing group last night and we were talking about it because several people had written stories as the caregiver. And it was like, wow, no one really thinks mm -hmm. about these people or they do, but you're thinking about the sick person. Mm -hmm. And the caregiver, depending on the situation, is often as affected in a different way uh, as the patient. I'm actually interviewing my mom mm -hmm. and so interested oh, to hear what she has to say. That's brilliant. Yeah. So you mentioned the things that you don't like people saying? What are the things that you think are beneficial to say and sort of the tools for people to have in their back pocket yeah. if their friend is suddenly diagnosed with something or dealing with something? Yeah, I'll get to that. But I think that the friend of the sick person needs to think of the caregiver as the second sick person in that house. She's somebody who needs you to say, I'll be here for a couple of hours, you go out. They need to be able to go out and, and have coffee with a friend and get a haircut and, you know, go shopping for the week's groceries, stuff they don't have time to do. The caregiver could use a massage. What caregivers go through, especially Alzheimer's caregivers, is unimaginable. It's, I have a friend whose husband had a, a stroke several years ago, then he had a second stroke. Her life every single day is dealing with him, his caregivers, because she can't lift him. Can't take him to the bathroom. She can't move him to bed. She can't change his position. Uh, he's in the house on the couch or on the bed, and she has to deal with 
doctors. We needed a dentist. She has 24-hour care. She didn't like one caregiver. It was too rough. She had to spend two or three days getting another caregiver. She's more really more worrisome, her life and her well-being and her mental state are much worse than his body at this point. So I did want to say, pay attention to the caregiver. Mostly what they need is free time. Take over. Give them two hours. It's such an easy thing to give. We've interviewed a bunch of caregivers on the podcast at this point, and several people have talked about how they don't even know how to have fun or enjoyment. I mean, I'd say, so what do you do on your free time? And they're like, free time? Like, that doesn't exist here. No, because they have to catch up with their own lives. And also, the impact of so much misery on your psyche, even if it isn't someone you love, it's someone you're around, uh, and you're affected by that. Okay, so then what don't we want people to say? We don't want to hear that we should fight and we should be brave and that we're survivors and all of that because it puts such a burden on us to be something for them. We need to be strong for them because they can't stand looking at how weak we are. Why? Because it reminds them that they're weak. They're vulnerable. This could happen to you. You don't want to see that in somebody else. So don't don't you know, forget with the bravery and... and it's my least favorite word. I've talked about it a few times on the God. podcast. Hate it. Hate it. I didn't choose this life. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. The same is true. Survivor. I mean, I am a breast cancer survivor, but for me, a survivor is a survivor of the Holocaust. And for me, to use that word is an, uh, an offense. An offense. I, would, I wouldn't do it. I don't do it. I don't. We don't want to hear God language unless we know something's really. I have one friend who really religious and with her I can I can talk about God or let her talk about God and feel comfortable but I don't want somebody to say God only gives you as much as you can handle at a time when I don't really feel I can handle what's happening right now and I just need to kind of go with that I'm having a hard time handling this and God is not in the picture and even though I happen to be a believer so you know this has nothing to do with atheism it just has to do with the reality of the person at that moment is not to suddenly become so global and mystical and, and huge, you know. It's about right now, right here, the pain, the, the fear. The other thing we don't want to hear is that your aunt had it. Because what? even if my friend's aunt had breast cancer on her right breast, as I did and got it on Bethany as I did, she doesn't have my history. She doesn't have my parents' history. She's not my age. She's not my maybe social class, and therefore the poor thing doesn't have access to what I am fortunate enough to have access to, which is Memorial Sloan Kettering. You know, it's just not relevant. And I had somebody who, who said to me, oh, my, my aunt had it. She, she did die. I said she, I'm really sorry that she, she died, but I know people who've lived. You know, do I need to hear that? I do not need to hear that. And I, some things I really forgave people because I felt you know, they're doing the best they can. And some people I never forgave for a line like that. Woman, a woman who said to me um, at the point when I wasn't sure, I knew what I had, but I still wasn't sure what kind of surgery I was going to have. She said to me, well, if you, if you need a mastectomy, at least you're married. And I was like, this is, you think this is comforting to me? That all I'm caring about is my husband's response to my chest? This is such a kind of off-kilter reaction to what a person is really afraid of. 
And let's also remember what your background is and what you stand for yes. as a feminist. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was so tone deaf. Some and they're not cruel. They don't know what to say. Um, I remember a woman whose husband died in nine eleven, and then she got cancer. And somebody said to her, "You, you really have bad karma." <laughs> it's just. It's the immediate things that people say. It's the first thing that comes to mind. And you used the word think a few minutes ago. And I think that's so important to remember to do because people just go into autopilot. Here's the first thing that comes to mind. This is what I have to say, as opposed to let me think and pause and be creative and really think about who this person is that we're dealing with. They've been through the ringer. You don't need to remind them that. And you don't need to. I mean, they're already thinking of, am I going to die? The last thing you need to do is go there in any form at all, in any form at all. Also, not to tell you about somebody else who, you know, really sprung back to health in six weeks' time, and don't worry about it. You'll be back at work, and you'll be feeling fine. You don't know a freaking thing about whether I'll be fine. And it's not helpful. And... To this day, though, Harper, I have impulses to say to people, well, I, I've been through it, and, and to tell them. There's a part of me that says they'll be comforted, but now I have to stop myself, and I have to say that they, it might not happen to them like that. It, it's like Gloria Steinem famously said, this is what 40 looks like. This is what 50 looks like. This is what 80 looks like. It's not what 80 looks like on most people. <laughs> right. So that's a kind of metaphor for it. If you've had a wonderful experience, good for you, lucky for you. Don't even pass your good news along. Don't pass your bad news along and don't pass your good news along. Just go with it. Go with the person. And people always say, well, what should I say? If I can say, how are you? And I, and I shouldn't emote, oh, my God. And I shouldn't say you look great, or you know, I shouldn't say what I had and that I got through. I shouldn't say all these things I shouldn't say. What should I say? And I think that you know, if, if one thing is really straightforward. What's happening? It's so easy. What's happening? What's new? That way, the person can say, "Actually, I feel like I'm 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 gonna have a have a nervous breakdown. I'm gonna crash. I can't do this anymore." Or they can say, well, uh, we went to the movies the other night and we saw so-and-so. That puts it in the lap of that person to either be completely honest with you or if they're not thinking about their illness, to be normal. Everyone wants to be normal, ultimately. You don't want to be treated like the weirdos. You want to be understood. You want to be seen. Seen. Hegel said, everybody wants simply recognition. Who they are just recognize people who I am, and uh, if you're if you're not a solipsist living in their own world, and you actually know a friend, and you it's hard with a business associate or a casual acquaintance to know exactly how to relate. And so, what's happening or what's new? That's pretty vanilla aspirin speaking of ice cream, and you can't go wrong with that. Uh, but when you have heard something. The person shares with you. I, you know, I've just been told I have A, and I'm gonna B, and it might even be C. 
what is really going on in your head is, oh, oh, I, I can't imagine what that was going on. Or, um, I wish you a lot of strength to get through what that sounds like it's going to be. You know, somebody told me, I mean, yesterday that they don't want to hear I'm sorry. Is that on that program? I think so, said, yeah. Yeah, it was on one of your programs. <clears throat> it was, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Because I know I've said I'm sorry to hear that. And your guest said, I, I don't want people's pity. I don't want them to be sorry. So that's like a new thing. I said I'm still learning. That's like a new thing for me to take in. Because I think I have said I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, I'm, it's not that I'm sorry to hear that. It's I feel, it's really I feel for what you're going through. I can't quite imagine it, but I feel for it. And I'm trying to imagine it. Tell me, tell me what's happening. Tell me what's happening. Just what's happening. Yeah, and I think that reframe of mm-hmm. words really makes such a difference. You mentioned, you know, it's been almost 10 years since you were diagnosed mm-hmm. and almost that since you wrote this book. So there have obviously, it sounds like, been some times where you have maybe made the mistake or said something the way that you didn't mean to say. Yeah. Do you remember what those situations were like? Can you give me an example? Yeah, sometimes I said, oh, my God. I definitely said, oh, my God. It just came blurring out. We were in a women's group, and that was just a couple of weeks ago. So it's fresh in my mind. And we go around the room, and we say, what's going on in our lives? She says, well, I've known this for a while, but I haven't wanted to say it. And, of course, we're, like, leaning forward at the dinner table. And she says, I've just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I went, oh, my God. I I couldn't stop myself. It just seemed like she's sitting here as normal or as like herself as ever. And she's known for two years. And we haven't noticed because we meet once every eight weeks. I didn't really notice. And then she went into it further what it was feeling like, how she's writing about it, how her husband has responded, how her children have responded. And um, I realized I had said, oh, my God. And it was just like saying, oh, what a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. You're going to be a vegetable. I'm never going to be able to talk to you again. That's basically what oh, my God said. You know, oh, my God, it's happening to you, but it's also happening to us and our friendship. Did you recognize that in real time that you yeah, reacted I, that way? Uh, I did. And how did you handle that? I said, I just said something I, t- I told everybody in the world never to say. <laughs> no, I, I did. I said exactly that. Um, and I, I, since it was my turn to speak, I said, do you feel like talking about it? Which is really the line to say. If only I had stopped and thought instead of, it was like a, a knee jerk. Like somebody hit a hammer on my knee and my knee went up. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> it was a total shock. N- nothing prepared us for it. Now, I've she talked for quite a long time, and our meeting went way, way later than normal. And, you know, we all asked how we can help, not just help, but be, how she wanted us to be with her. You know, how should we be when she can't think of a name? and we all can't think of a name. She went into a panic. She went into a spiral because she knew this is not just, sorry, I forgot the name of that book. I want to recommend to you. This is, this happens now more and more and more. And, and a person now I saw it 
a person who is in those early stages of Alzheimer's gets kind of frantic. They go like they, they snap their fingers and they hit their head and they say, you know, you know, they're trying desperately to pull out this name. They're in the middle of a sentence and then they get frantic and hysterical and ashamed. So we really said, how would you like us to be? Would you like us to help? Would you like us to guess with you or just move on? And I said, I don't know. Really not. She, she's like trying to struggle herself. But at least when she became forthright, we could become forthright. And we are now going to relate to her as she wishes, as long as we can possibly communicate with each other. That's so valuable to hear because you really created that space for her to have a voice mm -hmm. and to say what was valuable for her. And maybe she doesn't know all the answers, and I can definitely relate to that. I don't know what I want all the time. Yeah. But to say to her, vocalize to us when you can, if you can, what works. So you've had this book out for a while now. What kind of response have you gotten now that you've created what I'd like to think of as the manual to this topic? Um, again, I, when I'm asked to speak everywhere that I go, I ask people in the question and answer period that to be as honest as they can be, if they're in a community where they're sitting next to people who know them, I understand they can't necessarily, don't want to be necessarily honest. But if they can, this is their chance to say what they need. Because a lot of people come to things with other people. They come with you know, four people, they have dinner and they come. And then it's amazing what you hear. People who tell you the things that have hurt them and um, say, if I could do it all over again, I would have started just the way you recommended. I would have said, well, I have three three lines that you should say the minute you have your diagnosis. You should be able to say to a friend, and then it reverses. The friend should be able to say to you, let's start with the friend. When the friend tells you, I have, okay, breast cancer. I just heard I have breast cancer. I don't yet know what it is. I mean, the treatment will be. The friend should say, is it okay, you know, if you just tell me what's helpful and what's not? Would you do that? Would you tell me what's helpful and what's not? Would you tell me when you want to be alone and when you want company? And would you tell me, you know, what to bring and when to leave? And, and, and if the sick person or the patient just become a patient says, yeah, I can tell you what's helpful and what's not. I can tell you uh, what to bring and when to leave. I can tell you, you know, I, I can do that. And I will do that as long as it's really what you mean. Because how many of us say, oh, tell me what I can do. Can I do something? You don't mean it. If you answered that person and said, well, you could come over and walk my dog every day at 4 o'clock, you would say, oh, I'm a, I can't do that. Or would you come and mow my lawn? I hate the way it's getting out of shape here. Um, or bring in my dry cleaning. Or I need you to pick up my kid every Thursday because that's when I go for the chemo. Um, most people are not going to say yes, so you need to mean it. So I always say now, um, I say those three things, and then I say, I just want you to know I mean it. The same way that I say when I'm going to visit somebody in mourning, you know I'm going to bring something. Do you really want me to bring strudel like everybody else, or bagels like everybody else, or, you know, rug-a-luck or coffee cake 
Or what do you know? And you know what they answer? Toilet paper. Because the house is now, you know, run over by you, full of guests, and we run out of toilet We keep running out of toilet paper. So I stopped down at the biggest place I could get, one of those eight packs. And that, that's what they wanted. And, the, and their dining room table was full of coffee cake and bagels and, you know, salads and everything. So it was a, a real gift to give them toilet paper. It's so funny to hear you say it because it sounds so simple. Yeah, it is simple. It is simple, but we go in this, again, automatic mode of, oh, my God, that you don't even know what the right words are. But if you think for a second and you're able to sort of process, hey, they already have all these people at their house. They already have the food. They have the flowers. What's helpful? Toilet paper. Who would have even I, thought? I know. And you certainly shouldn't bring it if you're not asked. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So you mentioned a lot of great things that I think are really helpful to our listeners here. Um, I encourage everyone to pick up Letty's book, How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick. I know that you are working on things now, so I'd love you to share a little bit about what you're working on so people can check it out. Um, well, it won't be ready for a couple of years because I'm a very slow writer, very deliberative and methodical and a little bit mashugana. <laughs> um, crazy, that means. I'm working on a book on shame and secrecy, and um, illness comes into it, obviously. Some of what I learned from, from this book is going to be sort of redacted and homogenized into a new set of perceptions having to do with shame and secrecy. Um, and I think you mentioned that you kept your ailment uh, secret for a while, and sometimes there are good secrets. Sometimes it's self-protective when it comes to illness, to hold secrets. And so I, I want to be able to really look at the nuances, as well as to talk uh, in the first part of the book about the shame and secrecy that defined a lot of my childhood. That's incredible. I love that you're doing that. So how can people learn more about you and find you online, potentially? Mm-hmm. I know you're not the most tech-savvy. <laughs> but I do have a, a web page. Which is? Uh, I think it's Letty Cotton Pogrebin. Maybe it's Letty C. Pogrebin. Harper is being kind and looking it up at the moment because I can't remember the name of my own website. It's it's your name.com. And we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes (laughs) along with a link to the book. Right. And in it, it says my bio, all my works, my books and articles, and my upcoming talks, where I'm going to be and what I talk about if someone wants me to come and talk. And a newsletter, which I used to publish but stopped because I'm writing this book, and how to contact my agent. Thank you for having me in your home, and thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you for your honesty, Harper. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.